Very good. Cool. And welcome to those who are watching uh, online or listening to the podcast later, if you're, especially if you're away holidaying for the long weekend. Um, I'm going to start by having Teresa come, and Teresa's going to read from us from Mark chapter 4. Oh, you've got it on your iPad as well. I've got it here if you need it. And uh, we are going to reach Mark chapter 5 this morning as well. It's a tree. It's a big tree. Reading from Mark chapter 4, from verse 35. That day when evening come, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke up over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus stared in was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. They went across the lake to the region of Jerus census. When Jesus got up out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who'd seen him, those who had seen it, told the people what, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the, dec- to tell in the dec- Decapolis, the ten cities, 
how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So that, um, that seed that I planted during the sermon last Sunday, <laughs> it's, it's a miracle. No, I'm just kidding. I just want to start with a quick recap from last Sunday, for, for all our sakes, whether you're here or not, uh, because I want, what I want to share today, I guess, needs, kind of needs that context. It's kind of part two, um, in a way. Prior to today's text that we just read, Jesus told three stories, uh, we know them as parables, about seeds that grow into plants or trees. The first was that seeds need good soil to grow. The second was about how God does the growing under the surface. We don't necessarily see it. And finally, this parable about how the smallest of seeds produce the biggest of trees. Now, there are trees bigger than this, but this is as big as I could fit through the door. Uh, and given time, small seeds can produce big trees. I encourage us to be planting these small seeds of the kingdom. Uh, things like investing in relationship, in, in serving the poor, in forgiveness, in repentance, and most importantly, prayer. Because while we are conditioned in this fast-paced world for quick results and quick productivity and instant uh, results, it's small kingdom seeds invested over a long period, over decades or even sometimes centuries that actually produce the equivalent of large trees in the kingdom of God. I was so encouraged uh, last week after, after the celebration when one of our church, church family, Mika, her and her family come here uh, fortnightly because they come up from Rockingham. Mika shared with me uh, that she's been praying for a neighbour of hers to come to Jesus for 20 years. That's a long time, 20 years, and a few weeks ago, just a few weeks ago, that neighbour came to Jesus. After 20 years of praying, small seeds uh, with time and trust in God produce kingdom trees and kingdom fruit. The question that I've kind of left untouched until today, though, on purpose, uh, is what can big trees in the kingdom of God actually look like? On the one hand, we don't really know this because when we pray as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, we're praying exactly that, your will be done, Lord, not ours. And we don't know the specifics, but Scripture and church history, they do give us some idea of what the kingdom of God on earth can actually look like. Maybe it's some of the things you shared with your neighbour just earlier, but what else might the kingdom of God look like? And my prayer today, as, as I share, is that our faith in what God can do, in what he might just do in our time, in our place, that our faith in that expands just a little bit. Because too often our faith is, is limited by what we have seen before. Now, in the natural, it's, it's easy to believe that an oak tree, a massive oak tree or a massive palm tree, metres and metres and metres high, can grow from a small seed or an acorn or a nut. But uh, because we've seen literal large trees, we know where they came from. Uh, but spiritual equivalents of large trees, we may not have seen before. However, we do get a glimpse of the kingdom of God on earth if we look in history 
and in the life of Jesus. So let's pray. And um, I want to start with Jesus today, and then we're going to look at some things God has done uh, over the last few hundred years. Father, as we open your word this morning, and as we open our hearts, may you expand our minds, may you expand our faith through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So these two passages that we just read, what they do is they parallel the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Way back in February, when we were in Mark chapter 1, I pointed out that Jesus started the whole thing off by displaying his authority over two realms, the physical and the spiritual. It's it's incredibly impressive in this first scene in Mark chapter 1. He casts out an evil spirit from a man who's in the synagogue, and then he goes and he heals Simon's mother-in-law, who uh, has a fever. So spirit, uh, authority over the spiritual and over the physical. You fast forward then to chapters 4 and 5 that we read today, and it's the same thing. Jesus has just been talking about the kingdom of God being able to be this powerful, magnificent, huge tree-sized thing. And then we again see him exercising authority over the physical and the spiritual, but now it's like a step up. Instead of just casting out a demon and healing somebody with a fever, it's he tells the wind and the waves to settle, and they do, and he casts out a legion of demons, spiritual forces that give a man such strength that he could break steel. So Jesus has stepped up his game. Back in chapter 1, I love the parallel here. Back in chapter 1, he says to the evil spirit afflicting the man, be quiet. And then now he says to the wind and the waves, silence, be still. This is amazing parallel between what's happening early in Jesus' ministry and then as it's growing later. Firstly, I want to remind us that the authority that Jesus had from God, it is rooted in his identity as God's son. Now, this framework that I'm going to put on the screen, some of you will be familiar with by now. I use it often. I find it an incredibly helpful uh, reminder of correct theology for us, right thinking and faith. God our Father gives us our identity as his children. And from that place, we can obey. Works-based theology, not Christian thinking, but works-based theology, flips it. It says if we are good enough, if we obey God, if we do the right thing, then we'll be able to be worthy of being his children, and then we can call him Father. It flips it on its head. But grace-based Christianity is our Father makes us his children, and we obey from that place. Alongside this, the truth is that our Father is the King of kings. He's the King of all things, and so our identity as his children, given to us freely, means that we have authority that comes from the King. And as we respond to him in obedience, we... This means that we operate with the power that comes from that authority, the power to bring the kingdom to earth. Now, Jesus, of course, lived this perfectly. This is Jesus. Jesus is the only one to ever, who, who was to ever fully embrace his identity as God's son. And as such, his perfect obedience meant, meant that the king's authority that he carried, it, tra- it translated into an incredible power in his life. And and we saw that in chapter 1, just a taste of it, where this authority translated to a power to cast out a demon and heal a sick 
woman. But then it's seen much more prominently as he continues to obey God. And of course, as we get to the end of the story of his life, we will ultimately see perfect obedience to death on a cross, which will give him what? Power to overcome death itself. So that's Jesus. Perfect Jesus. What about his followers, though? What about us? Are we supposed to be like Jesus in this powerful outworking of the kingdom of God, or is that just a Jesus thing? As one person put it, is that just an anomaly in time? And now it's, it's, it's not relevant anymore. Firstly, I would want to ask us this question, and to really think seriously about this. Are you and I any less children of God than Jesus? Just, just think about that for a minute. Oh, maybe. Are you trying to catch me out here, Luke? The Bible talks about our relationship with God with the language of adoption. Uh, that describes an adopted child is the language that describes the relationship that believers in Jesus have with God. We've been adopted to sonship. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, sure, you could have a parent who has a biological child and an adopted child and they love the biological child more than the adopted child and they consider the adopted child only kind of a child of theirs and the biological a full child. Um, but, of course, any loving parent, any sincere parent, even if they're not perfect, is going to treat their adopted child just as sincerely and just as much their child as they do a biological child if they have adopted them fully. So how much more is this true of the perfect God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who not only adopted us into his family, but created us in the first place? You and I, this is so important as, as grounding for all of, of, of what it means to, to pray that God's kingdom will come. You and I who have been made children of God through faith in Jesus are just as much God's children as Jesus. Amen. Just as much God's children as Jesus. And so the same authority that Jesus carried is given to us and the same power that, he, and that was enacted in him through obedience is possible for us. The breakdown, of course, happens when we reverse this and we go, we want to be obedient so that God will love us, not so that the kingdom may come through our life. We try to establish our worth in God's eyes through obedience rather than going our worth in his eyes is fully settled and it's obedience that might translate into the authority we already have becoming the powerful outpouring of God's kingdom on this earth through us. This is why mustard seeds, little kingdom seeds of faith and obedience to God in the smallest and seemingly insignificant things, they actually do produce kingdom uh, trees. The seeds of something like time spent in God's presence. It does something. It refocuses us on this. It refocuses us on our identity as who you are in Christ. And then that enables us to unlock obedience in our life because we're secure in his love, which unlocks kingdom power. Uh, the seed of repenting of sin, simple repentance, committing ourselves before God and saying, God, we want you to change us. This brings us back to forgiveness from our Father. 
It unlocks in us the authority in our life once again and drives us towards obedience, which unlocks power. If Jesus needed to plant and water those seeds of a constant return to his Father's presence, which he did, how much more do we need to? But one thing that I think stops us, I think, I think this is a huge piece of being secure in our identity in Christ. And, and that's probably the most important thing. But another thing that I think stops us from planting seeds of faith and, and dedicating ourselves to time in God's presence and that kind of thing is that we don't have a vision for where it might take us. It's hard to visualize the powerful outpouring of God's kingdom on earth that stems from seeds of prayer and worship and repentance and forgiveness. Jesus, we saw what he did. We saw the power in his life. We read it. He calmed the storm, told the wind and the waves to settle, and he cast out a legion of demons. That's, that's powerful, let alone rising from the dead. But has that kind of power been seen in God's children since Jesus? I want to submit to you that, yes, it has. And I want to attempt this morning to show you some big trees in the kingdom of God on earth that might expand our faith a little bit, just to believe that it's possible in our time, that it's possible in our corner of the world, to see the Holy Spirit move in power as he, as he did in Jesus. Um, why? Because it might just be the catalyst that motivates us to plant the small seeds of faith because we can, we've got a glimpse of where it might lead to. What might it look like to see the kingdom of God on earth? Which, which really just means God being king on earth, as N.T. Wright said in the video before. Where God is in charge, when God is king, that is the kingdom. Uh, what if that was to become a reality here in Canning Vale as it is in heaven? Are you with me? Okay. We could start by looking at the book of Acts. I would highly recommend that. Um, but I want to actually skip straight to more recent history uh, where we can read in, in plenty of books that are easily available online about what God has done across the earth in recent history. Places like the Hebrides. These were some islands off the coast of Scotland. Or with a group of people known as the Moravians. You might have heard of them before. Or in a number of um, other powerful moves of God, sometimes called revivals. I want to start with a guy by the name of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. I don't know if that's a... No, sorry, Count Nicholas Ludwig Zinzendorf. Uh, he was born in German, of course. He was born in 1700, described at one point as the noble Jesus freak. Upon leaving school at age 16, he handed his professor a list of seven praying societies he'd established during his time at the school. Not bad for a 16-year-old. Uh, when he was 22... There was this group of refugees, the Moravians, uh, who they showed up at his estate. He had quite a big plot of land. And uh, Zinzendorf agreed to let them um, build this village on his estate. And it was called Hernhut, uh, which means the Lord's Watch. You may have heard of it before. Um, as it turned out, these, um, th these refugees, they were actually causing quite a stir. They were quarrelling a lot. They were fighter fighting with each other. And so Zinzendorf, he, he went down to the village and he challenged them to sort out their issues and to apologise to one another, to repent to one another publicly and to God. And as they did that, 
the Holy Spirit was poured out on them in in an overwhelming way. And soon 24 men and 24 women were inspired by Leviticus chapter 6, verse 13, as you do, uh, which says the sacred fire was never permitted to go out on the altar. They um, then covenanted together to pray continuously for one hour through the day and night, a 24-hour prayer room. And this 24-hour-a-day prayer meeting continued for some time. 120 years, 24 hours a day. Long story short, now that you know, okay, that's that's good. What was the effect? Uh, I don't have time to unpack the full story, but long story short, this this prayer meeting essentially birthed the modern missionary movement and fueled the Reformation. And now, if if you're like, well, what's that mean? Basically, this prayer meeting has dramatically changed where the church exists today and the gospel that it preaches in a very, very good way, just from some people praying 24 hours a day. Small seeds planted over a long time. This is the power of intercessory prayer. I've I've been reading a book, as I mentioned before, called How to Pray by Pete Gregg, who started a modern-day Moravian-style prayer movement called 24-7 Prayer. And um, I, I've included an excerpt in our, in our newsletter for this month where he recalls this conversation with a Franciscan priest. And uh, I, I encourage you to have a read of the whole excerpt, but basically the, the essence of the story is this. This conversation he had is, is this. The priest said to Pete that taking an hour to retreat to a prayer room is actually to refocus on Jesus so that you can carry his presence with you into the other 23 hours of the day. It's with a heightened awareness that he is with you, that he is for you, that he likes you, and that he hears your thoughts. It's not one hour of prayer. It's actually one hour to stop praying, in a sense. So you pray more instinctively the rest of the time. Stopping for one hour to focus on Jesus so you carry his presence with you into the other 23 hours. To me, this sounds like Jesus. In the passages that we've been studying in Mark's Gospel, Jesus simply he, he came close to a demonic spirit or someone in need or a sinner, and the presence of the Holy God was in him so strongly there and then because he'd been with the Father, so sin, demons, and sickness would flee when Jesus was near, and transformation would happen in that person's life. Now again, that's Jesus. What might it actually look like in our time? Well, here's an account of a guy by the name of Charles Finney. He was a revival leader and a good Presbyterian. Uh, This is the account. During a a visit to a New York mill in 1826, he visited a cotton manufacturing plant where his brother-in-law was superintendent. As Finney passed through a spacious room in which many women were working at looms and spinning jennies, he noticed several young women watching him and speaking among themselves. As Finney approached them, they became agitated When Finney was about 10 feet away, one woman sank to the ground and burst into tears. Soon others were sobbing, overcome with the conviction of their sin. This outpouring of the Spirit spread rapidly throughout the building until the entire factory was singularly aware of God's presence. The owner, an unbeliever, realized God was at work and temporarily closed the plant. He asked Finney to preach to his employees and tell them how they might find peace for their souls. Finney had not spoken to any of the laborers. He had simply entered the factory. 
God's powerful presence in Finney's life had been too overwhelming to ignore. I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine rocking up at Woolies one day and uh, no one's in the checkouts, no one's in the aisles, and it's just like deserted. And you just say to somebody you know, out, out in the foyer, like, where is everyone? And they say, well, I think they're all out in the warehouse. They're all like crying out to Jesus because some guy walked in and the presence of God in his life was just, it just invaded the whole building and now they're all worshipping God. Can you imagine this? Now, as I share these kind of stories, you, you, you might kind of think, look, maybe, maybe this could happen with someone who's like been on their knees in prayer for, 20, for 50 years and, and just like fasting and dedicating their lives to God for like just, just seriously like that. Firstly, the power in Finney's life was actually due to a prayer intercessor behind the scenes who was constantly praying for Finney's ministry. And when Finney died, he actually lost much of that anointing. There's many other stories of what God did through his life. But here's another story of someone who didn't have the spiritual maturity or the longevity or anything like that to wield this kind of Holy Spirit power. This happened in the the Hebrides revival, which some of you will know of, a move of God through uh, islands off the coast of Scotland. It was a guy known as Donald the Praying Teenager. It's actually Donald the Praying Boy, but he's like 15. One account says this. When he got converted in the revival, he went out, Donald went out at night under a conviction of sin and never came back. They sent out a search committee to find him to make sure he's okay. And he was on his face in a trance saying the words, Jesus, 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 Jesus. He was fine. He was just encountering Jesus. They brought him home. And he had this unbelievable intimacy and authority in prayer to release the Holy Spirit. At one point on a a small island off the coast of Lewis, one of the revival leaders, uh, Duncan Campbell, was assisting at a communion service and the atmosphere was heavy and the preaching was difficult. But there's a spiritual oppression going on. And so Duncan Campbell sent for some men to come and assist in prayer. There was this group of men in the nearby town called Barvis. They were called the Praying Men of Barvis. Can you imagine that? We've, you, know, you needed reinforcements in prayer. You just called on the praying men of the billabong and just they kind of come and you know, help you out. Um, they prayed, uh, the praying men of Barbas, they came, they prayed, but the spiritual bondage and oppression persisted. Duncan Campbell stopped preaching and he noticed Donald, the praying teenager, visibly moved with a burden for souls, the, the account says. And he thought, Quote, this boy is in touch with God and living nearer to the Saviour than I am. This is the leader of the revival. So leaning over the pulpit, he says, Donald, will you lead us in prayer? And this is the account. It says, the lad rose to his feet and in his prayer, referencing Revelation 4, says, O God, I seem to be gazing through an open door. I see the lamb on the midst of the throne with the keys of death and hell at his girdle. And then he begins to sob and lifting his eyes towards heaven, he cries, Oh God, there is power there, loose it here. And with the force of a hurricane, the Spirit of God swept into the building and the floodgates of heaven opened and the church resembled a battlefield. On one side, many were prostrated over the seats, weeping and sighing. On the other side, Some were affected by throwing their arms in the air in a rigid posture. God had come. This was just a kid who who got right with God, who'd released the Spirit at 15 years old. Now, 
Those are kind of some fairly out there and amazing accounts of, of a few individuals. Uh, but what about if a whole community of people were to be so hungry for and so filled with the Spirit of God's and God's presence that God's presence was to impact our whole region? What if that was to happen? I'm glad you asked. Australian pastor John Tyson, uh, he took a, a, a trip around Europe recently visiting uh, many of the sites of these revivals, um, which is, in turn has prompted me to, to learn a little bit more about them and what God did and what sparked it all. John uh, talks uh, about one day when he was talking to this pastor about the revival in Northern Ireland, um, a conservative Presbyterian Calvinist pastor. And um, this guy mentions in passing the presence of God over Northern Ireland and the, transport- and the transportation problems, uh, just like in passing. And John's like, whoa, whoa, whoa what, what, are you, what are you talking about, transportation problems? And this, this guy explained that there was a time when people were immigrating from England to America and the presence of God over Northern Ireland was so strong that people would come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit uh, just when the ship got close to Northern Ireland and the people running the shipping lines hired, had to hire chaplains because the people under conviction of sin were causing such disturbances on the cruise line as they passed. It happened in New York uh, in a similar way on the docks as people arrived and Australia has also seen these kinds of moves of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to take a... Step back for a minute and recognize that um, all this is kind of a little bit out there. Uh, Last week, I was talking about planting small seeds of of faith and trusting in God and letting him do what only he can do under the surface. And you know what? I could could see and I could hear afterwards that it was reassuring for a lot of people because sometimes... We can get discouraged and we can get beat down and and it's good to be reminded that just planting those seeds of faith, of praying for your neighbour for 20 years or however long it might be, it is not in vain. God is at work. And so that's encouraging, plant seeds. But now I'm talking about revival and a move of God we've never seen before in our time and the inclination is to just go back the planting basil, which is looking kind of sad right now, right? I mean, if it can take 20 years of prayer for one neighbour or friend or family member to come to Christ, or maybe 50 years, or maybe it never even happens, and how long is Holy Spirit revival going to take? How long is a big tree like this or one of the ones outside in the spiritual going to take? And admittedly, it could take a long time, especially if there's only a few people who are praying for it. But I want to to share with you today, and I want to finish today with this kind of step-by-step vision that I, I heard recently that shifted my perspective and just gave me hope for what is possible in our time and where it starts. If we want to see our community transformed, that is a key part of our vision, the transformation of our communities. If we want to see that, it actually starts with what theologians might call regeneration, right down the bottom, right? This is the individual Christian. 
This regeneration is just a fancy word for somebody coming to Christ, right? When a person puts their trust in Jesus, the Spirit of God regenerates their life, regenerates their heart, and they have new life in Christ. And this is amazing. This is personal revival. This is, this is a miracle. This is death to life in the person. And we, we are praying for that. We're praying for friends to come to know Jesus. I want to encourage you to grab one of these journals, pray each day for just five people who you know to come to know Jesus and see what the Lord will do. But regeneration is not where it stops. This often leads to a process of restoration. God in his kindness, when somebody commits their life to Jesus and he transforms their heart, God in his kindness begins to restore that which was lost through generational brokenness or through their own sin. And it's, it's part of discipleship. It's this beautiful thing to watch God repair the life of a new Christian person or an old Christian person to repair a life. And God continues to do that. But this often leads to a third stage, which you might call personal reformation, which is where you and I really become aware of the old way of life and the need now to walk in the Spirit. Not just being healed by God and transformed by God, but, being, but really shaped by God to put on Christ and put away the flesh, and bear the fruit of the Spirit. And it can be this struggle to, because you're wrestling with the flesh, but God helps his people to reform, to change, and to become more and more like Jesus. If you have a community of people, though, who together are being reformed, together are becoming more like Christ, this can lead to what you might call renewal where together a hunger and a closeness for God in the whole church that's not just human momentum and not just this kind of exciting time that's led by some charismatic leader from the front, but this shift in the atmosphere where everyone together is driven by a sense that God is doing something and that we hunger for God and we thirst for God that he might do something special in our time. If renewal continues and grows, you might get to what we call revival. Now, Jonathan Edwards described this as the acceleration of the normal work of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God being so strong in the community that, that those who would usually come to Christ in 20 years come to Christ in two months, where time just collapses. And the church just meets at every opportunity, like in the book of Acts, meeting together daily to, to be taught and to learn and to worship God and to share where they have a just absolute revival breaking out. It's a step up from renewal where there's just an hunger and an energy, but it's so much of that that there's a powerful move of God in a time and place. But that is still in the church. When revival breaks outside of the church and begins to affect the community and the culture around us, this is what we might call awakening. All that to say that my hope is that we become of one mind as a church family, agreeing that all these things are good and all these things are important, but we are after awakening. That we are after the transformation of the community around us, not just a great move of God in the church. We're after a church family that's thriving and the communities around us being transformed by the Holy Spirit. That is our vision. It starts with regeneration of the individual and restoration, a reformation. 
And we could stop at any point in this progression. It would be so much easier to kind of lower the bar and go, you know what, let's just, let's just go for like we're all kind of growing in Christ. Um, it would be easier to do that because the story that we just read today about Jesus casting out a legion of demons shows us the kind of response we can get when the power of God breaks out. If God does his thing, it's inconvenient and it's not great for business. When Jesus sent a legion of demons out into that herd of pigs, some poor farmer lost their bacon supply for the next few years. That's just the reality. That's why they said to Jesus, can you please get out of here? We don't want this. And when they saw the man who was previously possessed but was now sane, they were afraid. What is this power? Many won't understand the power of God at work. It's otherworldly. The most powerful works of God ultimately bring the most transformative results in our cities and regions. And this previously possessed man went out to share the gospel across 10 cities, ultimately changing the destiny of those places. And so regeneration, individual people coming to life in Christ is good, as is restoration of brokenness in our lives, as is reformation of our hearts that we would truly become like Jesus. But if we're to see whole communities transformed, we need a family of people who are being restored and reformed together and have an energy and a hunger for God to bring renewal and a burden to see an acceleration of the work of the Holy Spirit in our time that eventually we might see a true awakening in our culture. But it all starts with seeds. Right? Every revival in history began with ordinary Christians treating prayer not just as a part of the Christian life, but as the central ingredient required for the kingdom to come on earth. And so I want to say this morning, whether you're excited about that or you're kind of scared about that or you're skeptical about that, I just want to ask us to do one very simple thing. Not to try and overthink what this might all look like, but simply to ask God for a burden. To ask God to give you a burden for prayer. To ask God to give you a burden, a desire for for intercession, praying on behalf of others. To ask God to give you a burden for the lost in our city. A desire for his presence. Not to worry about what it will look like, how it might play out, what kind of Jesus freak we may become. But just to say, God, as Amy prayed before, place your heart in my heart. May I desire what you desire, God. And that is where it starts. So I, want you, I would love you to stand this morning. Uh, before we sing this, this next song, if the music team can come up, I want you just to everyone stand. And um, we're going to sing a song in a second, which actually is uh, about painting a picture of a vision of what God might do in our time. And I just want to pray that as we sing this song, God would increase faith in us. Father, we thank you so much for what you have already done in this church community over the last almost 20 years. We thank you for what you're doing in this city through the whole church community of of all the different churches in this region. But God, we want to pray that what you have done at times in history before, whether that be the life of Jesus, the early church, 
or the modern day church in various places, Europe, America, Australia. Lord, we pray that you would do it again now. But before we get there, we pray, Lord, give us a burden for the people you care about. Give us a burden for prayer. Give us a desire for your presence. We open ourselves to you that you might increase our faith, that you might increase our desire for you, for who you are, for your very presence in this region. And as we sing this song, Lord, that the mountains would tremble. We've not seen the mountains tremble before. We believe it's possible, not literally, but in the spiritual. We believe it's possible that people from all over this community would flood to places where your presence is, that they would experience the God they have never met before and be transformed by the power of your spirit. And Lord, where we don't believe, help our unbelief. Give us faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, team.